Hey, this is Howard Jacobson. Welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. My guests today are Adam Aronovitz and Alyssa Billfield, the co-founders of The Cookbook Project, which is found on the web at thecookbookproject.org. Welcome, Adam and Alyssa. Thanks, Howard. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So let's, let's start with the, the basics. What is The Cookbook Project? Just a brief description to orient our listeners. Sure. Um, so the Cookbook Project, uh, we're a nonprofit organization, and we're a food literacy and cooking education organization. So we work with communities around the world, and we train community leaders, educators, healthcare providers, uh, interested volunteers. Um, we train a lot of health counselors as well to be able to lead food literacy and cooking education programs um, with either youth or adults in their community. Gotcha. And this is this is global. Uh, it's global. We currently, we've trained at this stage, we're zeroing in on 500 food literacy educators in 35 U.S. states and more than 20 countries. Uh, and Alyssa and I have uh, led field projects extensively um, all over Asia and uh, parts of Africa and the Caribbean. Wow. So tell, tell me, how, how did the idea for this come about, that, that you guys were going were gonna to help share food literacy in, in the U.S. and around the world? Well, excuse me, I think it's really a combination of both me and Adam's um, areas of expertise and also our interests. Adam comes to the cookbook project with many years of experience as an experiential uh, educator and also um, an educator in the formal school system in the Boston Public Schools. And my background is actually in environmental sustainability. So I'm really concerned with um, developing environmental consciousness through uh, through what we eat every day. So the fact that every day, you know, three times a day if we're lucky, we have the opportunity to choose what we eat and whatever we choose to buy, that makes an impact not only on our health, but also on the health of our local community and also on the sustainability of the environment. So we really felt passionately about reconnecting people back to their traditional and family-based food cultures and to use that as a really strong foundation for teaching healthy, sustainable, and budget-friendly cooking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Go ahead, Howard. No, go ahead. Keep going. Uh, And I was going to say, you know, know, I I spent many years teaching in the the Boston Public Schools, and I really found that my students, many of whom were arriving from other countries, uh, as they started to adapt to the standard American diet, you know, not only were there uh, unwanted physical changes, you know, leading to obesity, but their ability to focus in the classroom, you know, even as their, if their English skills were improving, their test scores were dropping, um, and we started to have a lot of a lot of kids that were being put on um, ADHD medication um, based on these changes that were happening in the classroom. And, and from from what I saw, it was really a, a big change in the diet that was that were causing a lot of these issues. And so, wanted to to create a curriculum that could address these changes because it was not being addressed um, in the public school system at that time. So you you saw kids, and I'm assuming that excuse me, a number of these kids were were immigrants who didn't have a lot of money. Yeah, and so and so, what's interesting is in there, you know, if they're coming from Latin America, for example, um, you know, the cheapest foods in Latin America were were higher quality whole grains. They're eating a lot of plant based protein. Um, they're eating a lot of local fresh fruits, and vegetables. And as soon as they got to the United States, um, you know, all of a sudden the, the cheapest and most affordable foods or the really 
at least for if, if what was being advertised to them, were really highly processed, um, highly processed foods and, and lots of white grains. Uh, and this was, yeah, this was something that, that, that had a really negative impact on them. And did you find that there was a awareness in the communities that th- that their kids were concentrating less, or did they just put it down to be, like becoming Americanized? Or so this is really coming from teachers, teachers struggling with um, inability to focus, and you know, teachers are under a lot of pressure to to deliver um, you know ever increasing test scores, um, and so. So really found that, you know, for, for kids that were not succeeding and, and that they were headed on a negative trajectory, um, this was the intervention that was being suggested and, and in some cases, um, you know, strongly suggested to, uh, to family. Hmm. So, so it's, so your, your work in getting people to eat better grew out of these communities and these students? It, it originally, the original idea um, came out of these experiences because these issues weren't being addressed. You know, there were there were there were health educators that would come into the schools, but it was just you know it happened for an hour or two. It was people that the, the children had no connection with. So we really worked to develop um, a curriculum that that we would be able to test for you know quite a while to make sure that this coming out really effective, and then be able to offer this curriculum to people that are already connected to these to these youth groups um, so that they're you know they're really key informants and they're going to have a lasting impact on the um, youth they work with mm. okay and uh, Alyssa, so you said you your your background is environmental sustainability i know a lot of people in environmental sustainability whose attention is focused almost entirely on fossil fuels and don't give a thought to food how did you make that connection well, that's a great question. I think I've always, I've always really loved food and I've always really loved cooking. Um, although I grew up in the Midwest in a pretty standard Midwestern family. Um, from the time I was really young, I was always interested in animal rights and vegetarianism, um, and also veganism to a certain extent. And so that was always part of, part of what I considered when I sat down at the table. Um, and when I was working for the state government in Boston, you know, just like you said, I was doing a lot of, um, you know, energy-focused policy that really looked at uh, building impact and transportation impact. But I myself was getting more involved in the local food justice movement. And, you know, as an environmentalist doing research about the impact that um, our food choices have on the environment, I really saw very definitively that the organizations were doing, who were, who were doing that type of work, like the the UN Food and Agriculture Organization were finding incredible, I think about a third of the greenhouse gas impact globally that we have actually come from the agriculture industry. And part of that's transportation, but part of that's also um, really the, the meat and dairy industry and, you know, the resources that go into producing food out of those two industrial systems. So, um, I really, I really saw that we have a real opportunity in our daily lives to, uh, to mitigate that, to use an environmental term, to mitigate our own personal impact on the environment through our food choices. Hmm. And so how did you guys meet and, and give birth to this nonprofit? Uh, so we actually met on a program called Semester C. Um, which is a study abroad program for university students. Um, 
it's a quite quite incredible program. You actually live on a, on a ship. You study on the ship, and then you have opportunities to take your coursework into the field um, as you circumnavigate the globe. Um, so Alyssa and I met on this program, and, you know, we were both pretty young when I was 21, and Alyssa was 20. And, you know, through those experiences, we really started to see what were, what were the major issues that were happening across the world, what was the impact of Western, Western systems in the, in the developing world, and I think this has always been at the forefront, you know, that, that experience is at the forefront of, of you know, our planning and our, our career paths, um, which eventually led to, to really creating a project that, that we both feel really hits at the roots of many of the issues that we see in the world today, the health disparity issues, environmental issues. Um, you know, as Alyssa was saying before, I, I think in terms of environmental sustainability, um, especially for urban youth, urban youth have no connection to the environment. They don't, they don't, they really don't have the opportunity to interact with the natural world. But food is really there. It, it's the way that, it's the way that we can draw that connection. When they start to understand that food does come from the earth and that we need a healthy earth to provide food for us, um, they're, you know, we found that students are much more engaged and, and, uh, and eager to start to incorporate some positive changes in their own life that are also going to affect their, you know, the global society. Gotcha. So here's what I find myself wondering. So um, one of you was a school teacher. The other was working for state government. Um, I don't. I don't mean to make this an embarrassing question. I don't know either if either of you are, you know, trust fund children. But to form a nonprofit that's going to do significant work often requires significant funding. What What made you guys think you could put together something and get it funded and 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 create something big? Because so many people I know have the same thoughts and impulses as you, but they don't do it. They they don't do what you did. What What was the ingredient that that led you to to actually create something and fund it? Well, I think uh, that's, a, that's a great question. So something that did happen when we were um, living and working in the Boston area and both you know, making you know relatively decent salaries um, at that point. The Boston Public Schools actually um, compensate teachers um, very well um, compared to most school districts. And um, so we were able to save quite a bit of money um, during that time. And we left to, to take a year off to travel and volunteer um, across Asia. And while we were doing that, we, you know, the, the roots of the organization had, had started to sprout, but it wasn't a formal organization or a concept at that point. And as we were volunteering um, with different organizations around the world, um, you know, we realized what, what, we were, what we were working on is something that, that could be of benefit to, to everyone. So we started piloting the project um, while traveling in Asia. You know, we were really just doing this out of our backpacks at first. It didn't require, you know, we could do a, a full week-long project for less than, probably less than $50, um, you know, with ingredients being very inexpensive in that part of the world. Um, so for the first four years or three and a half years of the organization, um, significant funding really wasn't an issue. And it's only as we've, um, you know, we recently returned to the U.S. full-time um, this summer to, to really focus on building the domestic food literacy initiative in, uh, you know, starting in Boston and New Orleans. And, um, that's been, you know, now we're at the stage where, where funding is, is essential to maintaining the, the growth trajectory of the organization. Gotcha. 
Yeah, but yeah, a whole lot of bootstrapping, uh, the, you know, those first few years. And, you know, Alyssa and I, we, we definitely made a lot of personal sacrifices to, to be able to, to see this happen. You know, but I, I do think that it's, it's not, it's not often that, that something comes together that really has the potential to, to make a gigantic impact in the world. And it wasn't, it wasn't something that we were willing to, to see sort of just flutter away um, before, you know, really putting everything we put into it. So d- describe to me one of the most sort of exciting or interesting or impactful projects that you've done um, either in the in the U.S. Or, or anywhere in the world. What what kind of postcard comes to mind for you? Okay, so there um, one project that, that's coming to come, and I'm actually surprised that this is the project that's coming to mind, but there was a project we did last fall um, at the uh, Nepal Orphan's Home. Um, so it's a home outside of Kathmandu. Um, it's, they rescue um, young young women and young boys that have been um, part of the Komari system, which is uh, basically a system where children are sold, uh, mostly girls at the age of seven, um, in, into basically indentured servitude. It's, um, it's unfortunately a very common practice in, in parts of rural western Nepal. Um, and so these children are rescued in both Kathmandu. And so we um, we had a relationship with this organization for quite a while, and we were working with some of the um, the older the older girls there. I would say ages fourteen to twenty um, or so, and we were doing uh, an adapted food literacy educator training program with them. So that was it was a really amazing program because they started to understand that some of these village foods that they always thought um, were, were foods for poor people um, were actually some of the healthiest foods um, on earth, and some of the foods that people in the West um, are paying a lot of money um, to be able to eat. Lucy, what was the name of that one um, that that one green dish? The green dish. That's um, that one village dish, that fermented village dish. Oh, Gundrup. Yeah, Gundrup. Um, this dish, Gundrup, it's, um, it's a really amazing dish. And Lucy could say a little bit more about it. What? It's basically, so the Nepalis have a really complex and very rich system of food preservation. So they do a lot of natural fermenting and pickling. But they also do a lot of um, drying. Well, the gundruk is actually it's pickled or like lacto-fermented greens that are then dried and stored. So it has a really kind of almost like a seaweed or dual, if anyone's ever had that. It's got like a really salty, umami kind of flavor to it. Um, but the great thing about it is, you know, when you have a bumper crop of spinach, it's a really great way to preserve it. So they do it with a lot of other mustard greens and things like that. It gets dried in the sun. You know, all the women in the village get together to do this over a couple of days. Um, and then it's, it's able to be preserved and used throughout the year to add nutrition in, um, you know, non-harvest seasons. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, so that, that's just one example of one dish that, that really that we highlighted that and a lot of different fermentation practices um, to demonstrate the, you know, the wisdom of traditional Nepali food culture um, at a time when, the children there, although they're not able to afford it, you know, dreaming that one day they'll be able to afford to go to the KFC that just opened up in Kathmandu. That, that's like seen as, as a growing status symbol, um, which is strange in a, you know, uh, a country where vegetarianism still is um, very common. And, uh, you know, what really happened out of this project that was so amazing was at the end of the project, along with some of the leaders, we met with the leadership for the organization. And uh, on a meal-by-meal basis, we came up with solutions uh, for what was currently being provided and what could be provided um, at an even lower cost with, with uh, you know, with, with greater health, and that included transitioning from 
white rice to 50-50 brown rice. And white rice to full brown rice, which is from the, the, our last conversation with them is what they're serving now. And moving away from, um, for snack, they were, um, which actually is lunch, they were, it was either donuts or it was, um, they packaged, could, yeah, packaged yeah. Uh, ramen noodles, but they were just eating raw. Mm. Um, and so started working on um, this, this idea to, to, to make a bulk meal to provide that to the youth that are part of this organization, but also to sell at a very low cost, um, you know, homemade, lunches, homemade yeah. prepared lunches to the other, you know, families of the other students that are coming to the school. So that was, you know, that, that was one project that, that, that things really came together, whether it was a very measurable long-term um, impact to the community. Mm. And are you seeing the same effects of a better diet on these um young girls in, in Kathmandu, as you did in the you know, Latin American immigrants to the Boston area? Like, do they, do they focus better, have more, you know, passion and, and um, productivity? Like, what do, you, what, do you, what do you see in terms of their affect and behavior that tells you you're on the right track? That's a great question. And, uh, you know, this a longitudinal study in Nepal for, you know, at, at the, where our organization is at at this point is not, uh, you know, something that's very difficult for us to carry out um, without, without really a research budget. Um, what we have found, it's more anecdotal um, for, for a lot of our international projects, is that the, you know, the, the women are stepping into a leadership role in terms of cooking, that they've been re- really excited to be able to cook for the younger children on better part of the community, and really um, feeling uh, an increased um, appreciation for their traditional food culture and understanding of some of the dangers um, of the standard American diet that's been, you know, heavily advertised in uh, in Nepal and other parts of the world. And I think in terms of the projects that we do in the United States, um, you know, all, all of the participants are gaining skills and a lot of knowledge, but I think a really important aspect of the cooking programming is building self-efficacy or self-confidence. So all these participants, whether it's elementary school, middle school, or high school, you know, it, it's sort of the, the example of the small win. When they're able to cook a meal, when they're able to prepare something for the first time and then eat it and it tastes delicious or recreate that at home with their families, it really builds a lot of self-confidence, um, and that transfers over into other areas of their life. Mm. So I, ha- I have a a question that feels complicated to me, and I want to make sure I I ask it in a useful way. But one of the things I was thinking about when I was preparing for this interview and looking at your website is so I imagining like what it's like for a couple of, you know, middle-class American whites to go around the world, teach people how to eat. And, you know, there's, cause there's a lot of health education that is, is very sort of top down and, and insensitive. And I know that you guys think long and hard about, you know, how to, how to empower communities. But is, is there a way that you guys being representatives of, of sort of wealthy corporate industrialized America, Actually, had an advantage in working with some of these populations in destigmatizing their own cuisines. That's a really great question, and we've thought about that too. Um, I'm going to answer, answer the first part of that, and I think Adam will probably jump into the second. 
I think our curriculum, because it, it's grown out of the experiential education philosophy, it's really less of a uh, pedagogical system in which Adam and I go and teach people the right way to eat. It's actually more of uh, a curriculum in which Adam and I facilitate an experience for a group of people to reconnect to, the, to their own to the, to the wisdom of their own food culture traditions. Um, and sometimes we're working with groups where that tradition is the same. And sometimes, you know, in the case of the U.S., we're working with groups that are coming from a wide variety of backgrounds. So it's really more of us as an organization providing a forum for people to reconnect to traditional foods um, and, and, you know, to gain skills or to return to cooking methods that maybe their families once knew about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the first activity that we do, which is that, which is really why we're called the Cook Project, is each each participant makes a food culture recipe, which is a mini cookbook um, that highlights just a dish that they that they want to share from their their family tradition, from their heritage, and so that's really what we use um, as a lens for the rest of the program is to look at that and start to to look at some of the traditional ways that that dish was cooked, how to make it a little bit healthier, um, and I think that's something that is really valuable. Um, you know, for us coming and representing the West is, you know, for example, if we're working in Vietnam, um, for the, the youth there to, to see that, that Americans actually love Vietnamese food, that it's not, you know, they've developed an inferiority complex about their own food because all of the advertising that they see is for pizza, fried chicken, hamburgers, um, you know, all these. Soda. Right, all, all these, all these. And, and so they really think that in the West, this is what successful and very intelligent people are, are consuming. And for them to understand that actually um, it, it's pretty much the opposite, that people in the U.S., um, especially people that have been, you know, lucky enough to, to you know, to, to have access to, to really great information um, about healthy eating, are really flocking towards those traditional types of food in, you know, in droves and really bringing health back into the kitchen. When you travel around the world, do you get a sense that people see the link between diet and maybe how their own lifestyles have changed from being sort of relatively autonomous subsistence farmers to to losing their lands to you know dessert crops and coffee and tea and sugar or whatever whatever else are are people making sort of geopolitical and economic connections to the, to the way food has changed? Definitely. And I think um, we've even been both surprised and impressed with um, you know, some of the rural communities we, we work with, especially in Africa, um, that are dealing with this kind of transition into a more urbanized world. Um, you know, it's been interesting to talk with people, especially the folks, you know, the generation who we've often worked with um, when we've done leadership training. Um, just to talk to them about, you know, the foods that, that their parents ate and the foods that their kids are now eating and what's different about that um, has been super interesting. Mm. So w- what happens when people get the message? Because it, it, it occurred to me you're talking about, uh, you know, putting women in leadership positions, recreating appreciation of their traditional cultures, kind of destabilizing their um, – their worship of the West, you guys are pretty subversive. <laughs> what, 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 what ripple effects, you know, do you see anecdotally when people start to put two and two together? 
I mean, <laughs> what we're what we're what our goal is really is to get people to feel equipped with the tools to be able to provide healthy food for themselves that's based on tradition and not a newly introduced um, shift in, in media um, and culture that's really come up over the last you know few decades. Because we've definitely seen in the United States that there's been a significant um, gap in cooking competency over the last couple of generations. And it's had a disastrous effect on public health in the United States with the growing obesity and diabetes epidemic. Uh, and it's something that, you know, the trajectory is, is the same uh, all over the world. They're, they're at least a generation behind, um, but it's happening really rapidly. And so uh, this brings up a really interesting point because I, I think something that we realized over the last couple of years is, is these projects and as amazing um, as they have been and, and, and how great they've been for each community we work with. It, in a lot of ways, it is a symptom of the of the, the, the standard American diet in the West and that culture that is being exported to other parts of the world. And that, that's, that's really played a big role in our shift in focus to domestic programming is, is to really shift the, the, the food system in the United States and really focus on actually changing uh, – Changing the you know the dominant food culture um, in domestically so that that starts eventually to be able to spread internationally. It's already happening in upper class communities internationally. We saw a lot in India um, that the upper class communities, especially who are, who are most suffering from diabetes right now, they're starting to see a lot more organic stores open. They're starting to go back to vegetarian diets um, and back to a lot of their traditional grains mm-hmm. aside from white rice. There's a big movement in India um, to um, by a, uh, an amazing organization called Sharon. She's um, she's a doctor who um, who works with um, with patients um, exclusively using plant based diets, and she's seen a huge reversal in diabetes and, and, and many other issues. And that's something that's growing a lot in India. So um, we're really now working to accelerate that process here domestically, so that we can see it spread across the world. That's funny because I, I I buy a lot of my you know spices and, and pulses at this local Indian grocery store and for the first time I went in last week they had a line of organic products. Oh, which interesting! Is, which is like Mantra Twenty Four, which is so, was so weird yeah. to see. Like you know, the stuff is cheap and it's really healthy, but it, it there was never in my experience that sort of consciousness around different grades i just and i assumed it was just for import to the us but it sounds like it's a a growing it's consciousness it's an indian brand yeah yes an indian brand and what's interesting um we did some uh some digging around when we were in india working on a project in the south and we actually found uh through a local organic shop that actually the suppliers of those organic brands they were in, they are, you know, their initial market is the United States, although it gets rebranded under different companies that export it to the U.S. But that brand that you saw in the Indian grocery store, Mantra, there's a couple other ones, are specifically, in, you know, those same, you know, farmers and corporations are producing for the Indian market. So we're really hopeful uh, when we see things like that and we see, you know, consciousness in other countries, is that thing, especially among the rising middle class, um, start to focus on those types of issues. That's great. And it, it feels good to me to hear because I can get so caught up in just looking at, you know, the U.S. environment and political culture and, you know, industry stranglehold on policy to realize that there's a lot more people in the world than just us. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But we do have, 
the choices that we make here in the United States and the markets that we create as consumers um, have a very, very, very strong ripple effect um, across the world. It does take it does take some time for those waves to reach some of the you know the far off destinations. Um, but you know, as consumers, and I'm sure a lot of people that that are listening to this podcast um, do do you know make very conscious choices about how they how they spend their money and who they choose to support. Um, and it really is it really is important. It's going to have a, a very important effect on you know on global food culture. Uh, so, what what challenges have you seen in working domestically that maybe surprised you a little bit or were harder uh, than you thought it was going to be? Um, that's a great question. I think you know one of there are a lot of reasons why Adam and I ended up leading so many projects internationally. But one of them is definitely that you know in the United States you really need to be very conscious about liability issues and paperwork. Um, you know, there's a lot of signatures required to run programming. Um, and there, there are a lot of those types of red tape issues that can make program planning more complicated. But we've really tried, especially over the last year, as we've been cultivating a larger number of um, trained food educators here in the United States to, uh, to build up a number of resources for folks who do want to work in their communities in this way and to make it as easy as possible for them. Yeah, I think another, you know, from an organizational standpoint, um, you know, to be able to work, to really focus our work in the, in the U.S., um, you know, it, it does require significantly more resources um, for the organization to exist. So, you know, it takes, it takes um, quite a bit of, you know, more time than we'd like away from, Developing programs and for doing trainings to you know to, to development uh, and fundraising for the organization, um, which has been a you know it, it's challenging when we know that if we spend a few more hours recruiting food literacy educators, that we could have a hundred more programs happening in this year in the U.S. Um, but it, you know we have to spend a lot you know a lot of that time working on the sustainability of the organization. Gotcha. So here's another. Um, question I'm wondering about, which is in in Nepal, there's a clear difference between Gundrup and KFC. Like nobody thinks they're, that KFC is, is their traditional dish. In the U.S., in, you know, communities of color, in Latin American communities, there's a lot of food that looks like traditional food or soul food, you know, velvet cake and and, you know, pork stuff and pork belly, you know, and, <laughs> and, and um, you know, like Taco Bell that, that has the veneer of a traditional culture, which people can get can derive great pleasure from, but it's not really their traditional culture. Do you find that it's more complicated to introduce, you know, African-Americans and Latin, uh, American Latinos to, to their traditional healthy culture because of this confusion? That's a really great question. It does get vastly more complicated in the United States because of just, you know, the waves of uh, immigration um, and all the different, you know, types of ethnicities that are represented in this country. Uh, and so I think, you know, going back to the very first session of the cookbook project curriculum, the activity of the food culture recipe is where um, I think the rubber really hits the road and where, you know, our facilitators and Adam and I in our own experiences 
are able to really um, sort of get a snapshot of where the group is at they were working with. Um, you know, I think we really try to be, although there, there are a lot of general trends happening, we try to be really cognizant and present with each, with, with each of the groups that we work with to all of the individuals and where they're at. So, you know, within a, a particular group, we might have, you know, a lot of kids from Latin America, a lot of kids, um, you know, who are African-American or even, you know, first generation from West Africa coming to the country. And they may or may not actually have a strong connection to a particular food culture. And we might get, you know, a recipe that is like a bag of hot chips and a Coca-Cola. You know, what do we do with that as facilitators? And so we really try to um, positively equip our participants with the critical thinking skills to tell the difference between something that appears to be a food and something that really is a food. So when you, when you work with, I mean, do you, a lot of these foods have, are very, you know, emotionally based for people. When I talk to, you know, I don't even have to talk to people. If I just go out with a group of people, somebody will notice that I'm eating a certain way. And, and, and to, despite my best conscious efforts, people can get defensive about that, about, you know, that somehow I'm, I represent a threat to their, their self-esteem. Do you, do you get that either in, either with the, the, you know, the youth you work with or with adults or the people that who are, you know, the gatekeepers who are going to let you in or not, that somehow you're attacking their, their very personal food choices? It's a, I think it's another great question. Um, and I think what we've, so there's a couple, couple of different, different ways that I'd like to approach this. Um, one is that, you know, we're really, we're not trying to attack anything. You know, we don't, we're never telling youth, don't eat this, don't eat that. But just, you know, we're about food literacy. And, you know, by definition, that means understanding the impact our food choices have on ourselves, our community, and the environment. So when we're working with a youth group, for example, you know, they're, they're already maybe have an idea that eating, um, you know, fried chicken and cake um, is not the, you know, the best way to, to start their day. Um, you know, so that's already, that's already an idea they have, but a lot of people, you know, are willing to do things. You know, it's very clear. There's a lot of people that, that know this smoking cigarettes is not very good for them, but they do it anyway. Um, with the idea that, you know, it's their own life and they're only hurting themselves. But when communities start to understand that, um, you know, if one individual, one youth member just, you know, starts to understand the impact that that choice has on his local community, you know, that, you know, if you're getting, if, you, if you're shopping at, you know, just, just an example at KFC, you know, that's taking money out of his local community, um, his or her local community, and sending it to, you know, wherever the corporate office is for that, that particular chain. Um, and that, that's money that never comes back to the community. You know, it puts people out of work. Um, it, 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 you know, hurts the, you know, local food producer market. And at the same time, when they start to understand how those food choices affect the global environment, um, it moves beyond just making a, a selfish individual choice to a choice that's going to have a negative impact not only on themselves but everyone that they care about and everyone that, that they, you know, even people that they haven't met before. And we found for youth especially, especially in those adolescent years, where being, um, you know, you don't, you don't want to be seen as someone that's, that's hurtful, um, that that concept really starts to take root and start to understand that they actually, every time that they choose to eat, 
or they choose to, you know, start start preparing food for themselves, they, but they can make a choice that's going to have a positive impact and a positive ripple effect, um, effect across the world. And at the risk of being a little bit more immersive, um, I think youth, especially, you know, from middle school into high school, that particular age range, um, when they start to learn about food justice issues, specifically related to food corporations, they get pissed, you know, they, they get upset and, and they're, you know, they're angry that they, they feel like they've been taken advantage of or duped by all these advertisements. And we really often see a strong reaction where they're like, no, I'm not going to buy that. Like, I'm going to make this myself, you know? And it's really, um, it's wonderful to see, you know, how different youth uh, react. That, you know, that's, that's been a, a common reaction, actually. And I think one clarifying point I found out there, you know, we're not, we're not as an organization, we have no goal to, um, you know, to destroy um, fast food companies, um, and, you know, anything like that. We're, we're really trying to create demand, you know, a greater demand, especially in communities that, that typically haven't demonstrated demand um, for healthier foods. Because, you know, the reason that food deserts exist, it's not because grocery stores, um, you know, don't want to be there. It's the fact that they're going to, if they go into those areas and people aren't demanding um, produce and, and shopping at an actual grocery store, those grocery stores are going to go out of business. So if we start building demand in these, these areas that have typically been food deserts, we're going to start to see people that, that want to make a fair profit go in and provide um, the food that, that these communities um, are going to be able to purchase and, and, um, and create the meals. So, so how do you uh, bridge the, the catch-22 gap? I mean, you've got communities who aren't demanding healthy food, so you have no sources of healthy food in the community. Then you come in and you start to create demand, but there still isn't a grocery store. It's still the, the 7-Eleven or the, the gas station convenience store. How do you support people ongoing to, to feed themselves once they've um, been you know, educated about the, the, their options? That's a great question, and, and so something that's that's happening it's happening very rapidly in the United States is better food access. That's been where the majority um, of funding has gone to. The, the vast majority of funding has gone to food access programs. Um, you know, when I was teaching in the Boston school, Boston public schools, and my my school, you know, they're spending many hundreds of thousand dollars more that year um, to provide a healthier lunch program. But every time I picked up my kids in the cafeteria, um, you know, when I I come in, we got my seventh graders it would be the blueberries and the broccoli sitting untouched on the plate. Um, and so we're finding that there's all, there's so many, you know, all these great urban garden programs, um, but, but the kids aren't eating that food. They have no idea what it is. It's not connected to their, to their food culture. So there actually is, at this stage, a, a huge increase in access, at least at that level, um, but the demand is there. So we're really trying to build the demand. And once um, we can start seeing that okay, kids are eating um, healthier lunches. You know, they're starting to consume these foods more. We're seeing a correlation um, in academic performance and ability to focus. We're seeing a, a positive correlation uh, in terms of um, obesity and diabetes and, um, you know, and maybe some, some secondary correlations like reduction in violence and, um, you know, increased interest in, um, in physical activity. That's when that, that's when, you know, the, the wave is really um, set to go. So right now, and that's why we work, we work primarily with youth or with organizations. Um, we, we train a lot of people that are working in residential organizations like healthcare for the homeless organizations um, in places where food is being supplied um, by 
you know, by those, by those sites, uh, and then just building increasing skills so that they can start taking this home. Uh, so that's one piece. The other piece is that, you know, we do, we do something called the, the Sunday Gate Plan, which is uh, a way for, for both youth and their families to plan out ahead of time. So if they're going to be able to make one trip to the grocery store a month and load up on a ton of uh, whole grains and a ton of different types of plant-based proteins, then they're in a position where they've got the basis for every meal um, already there and that it just takes, you know, there's still, there is availability in these corner stores of, you know, limited produce uh, and limited fruits, but if they already have the, you know, the base of, of whole grains and plant-based protein, they can create tasty meals with a, you know, a little, a little spice collection um, at an incredibly low cost per serving. And do you, do you find that, you know, so in the sort of upper middle class communities that I'm often communicating with, one of the big issues is time. I'm too busy. I get home at 7. Um, I don't know how to do this. Is, is, is time uh, an issue in these communities as well? Yeah, time is an issue, I think, across the board, especially in the United States. You know, it's just sort of um, – an after effect of the multitasking, hectic lifestyle that we've all kind of adopted. And so, you know, that's another reason why we created this, uh, this really strategy called the Sunday game plan where, you know, whatever day of the week it is that you have an hour or two where you're doing, you know, chores at home, maybe it's laundry, you're doing the bills, whatever, you set yourself up during that time period to make staples for the rest of the week. So, a couple whole grains, a couple beans. You put them on the stove while you're doing other things so that, you know, you have those basics to work with throughout the week. Um, and we found, you know, this works with, you know, AmeriCorps volunteers living um, on the poverty line that are just out of college. Um, it works with the families of the participants that they serve, and it also works very well in um, middle to upper income uh, neighborhoods as well. And, and I'd like to get back on that for a second. Um, you know, and that's another reason that we really do focus on youth, as I, I definitely found teaching in Boston, um, you know, especially with, with in lower-income families. You know, these parents, they're working two, three, sometimes four jobs, you know, a ton of single-parent single, single parent families. They're simply not around to cook for their youth. It's not that they don't want to or they, they're choosing to do other things with their time. They're just trying to provide the basic necessities for survival. Um, but you have a lot of time, and that's why, you know, it, in a lot of ways, and especially in lower-income urban communities, um, some may argue that they have too much time, and that's why, we're, you know, that there's a lot of, um, you know, gang issues developed in certain parts of the city. And so we're really trying to create, um, you know, into, you know uh, a feeling of empowerment for these youth. So that instead of, you know, their parents having to give them um, money so that they can go eat a meal at a fast food restaurant, but there's food at home, and these kids feel empowered to be able to go home, um, you know, especially once you get into adolescent age. You know, we're not saying that second graders should go home and turn on the stove um, and start, you know, pulling out knives, um, but that they can actually go home and they can, they can take a huge load off of the families while also reducing the economic burden um, of, of eating so many meals out. Oh, that, that is so beautifully elegant. It, it reminds me of, you know, looking at these abandoned lots in, in inner cities and, and seeing them as, you know, places where crime happens, 
places where kids get into trouble, places where toxic chemicals are dumped, and seeing them as gardens. And, and, you know, Mm -hmm. solving the problem with with the elements of the problem. Taking, you know, Mm -hmm. seeing youth as... Uh, as the sources of uh, the, you know, the the energy to provide the good food that is going to solve so many problems. I really love the term "the problem is the solution," and I think that's definitely the case here. And you know, in cooking, uh, and I think if people, you know, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this um, are probably very active in the kitchen, and there's so many there's so many benefits to cooking. You know, it's a it's a huge confidence booster. You know, every time you actually prepare a meal. You know, it's a win. It's a great way to express um, artistic creativity. You know, we, we always think of food as edible art. Um, you know, there's so many there's so many different components to cooking um, that provide benefit. Um, you know, that can be hard to measure um, quantitatively, um, especially for, for youth. But it's something that, that that is at the core, of, you know, of our organization and why we do the work we do. Right. So. Uh, I'm feeling a little guilty because there's so much more work you need to do in the world. I don't want to keep taking up your time. But if people have, have been in, as inspired as I have been by this conversation, how can they find out more, get involved? What, what, is, there, what is there to do? So uh, I, that's, a, that's a great question. I'm glad, glad we had time to, uh, to bring that up. Um, so really what we're there's, – there's two things that – that, that people that can, people can do. Um, one is if they're really interested in, in this concept uh, and want to be a part of the movement, is to, to actually train with the Cookbook Project to be a food literacy educator. Um, we work with a lot of people that are fully employed and are just interested in, uh, in starting a, um, you know, like a parents group or volunteering at their faith-based organization or volunteering in their school to bring aspects of the Cookbook Project curriculum um, into their own community. We also find that, and this is an area we'd love to see um, a measurable increase, is for individual families to be able to use the Cooper Project's curriculum to get their children interested and engaged in the cooking process. Um, and, and I'm sure parents wouldn't be um, upset to hear also engaged in the, uh, the cleaning uh, process. <laughs> um, so th- those are two, two big ways. We're always you know, really looking to expand our reach, and, and, um, and we're – you know, on the other hand, uh, so people can do that by going to our website, uh, org. We're in the, the middle of a website um, migration, but the address will, will be the same. And there are opportunities on there to, to train with us. Uh, and we're always looking for volunteers um, that maybe aren't so interested in leading programming, but are interested in, in raising awareness about the work we do and, and, and building support um, for the Cooker Project so that we can, you know, exponentially increase our, our programming both in the U.S. Um, and abroad. So you, you guys are still bootstrapping, looks like. Um, we are very much still bootstrapping. We were, um, we were recently, um, and we're currently actually based out of New Orleans. Um, we were selected for the Propeller Social Venture Accelerator Fellowship. Um, so they select 15 um, social ventures, um, both for-profits and non-profits, um, that they see with the capacity to create um, systematic, yeah, change. systemic change um, in, in, in a few key areas. Um, so we're, you know, we're working... You know, very, uh, very, very, you know, very focused right now on, on building the infrastructure so that we can, you know, that our organization has that type of reach. Um, but yes, we're still, you know, and we're still very much bootstrapping for for the next couple of years. It takes a significant amount of um, of both data and financial records to be candidate um, for those 
those huge grants um, that would allow us to scale up. So, you know, so right now we're really, you know, our organization's funding, I think our average donation is, is, is less than $50 at this point. So it's really, um, you know, smaller contributions from, from people that are, that are really engaged about the issue um, that, that enable us to, to, to be able to continue doing this work. Awesome. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a gardener, and I have to tell you that the, the seeds I put in the ground are quite small. Mm-hmm. Right. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be, uh, you know, harvesting all these greens right now. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you know, so we're, you know, there's a lot, a lot of those pieces, you know, listen, I don't come to this with, with uh, a nonprofit experience. This, you know, our goal at first wasn't to create an organization. It was just to, to start um, leading, leading these projects. And eventually people, people that we met were interested in learning if they could do it and how they could do it. Um, and so that's really how the organization came into place. And so now we're just, yeah, we're just trying to find out how we can, how we can make this as sustainable as possible and how we can, we can really, you know, work together. And, you know, tagline that we've been using is, you know, cook the change you wish to see in the world because we really see all it. Cooking has, it just has such a huge ripple effect. And we're, um, yeah, we're thrilled to, to have the opportunity to do this. Wow. Well, it has been so inspiring to talk to you guys. So I would encourage everybody go to thecookbookproject.org. And so you can get involved just with your own family. Just you can uh, you can get, get, people can get their hands on the basic curriculum and and just help their own kids. Yeah, that, that sounds great. And also, people feel free to, to email us um, the info at the cookbookproject dot org. Um, that goes that ends up going right into my inbox. So um, you know, it'd be great to hear from people on, on the call if they have suggestions. I know there's probably a lot of people that are interested in plant based uh, in plant based. Lifestyles, and you know, love to share how how we incorporate that into our into our curriculum. Um, yeah, so it'd be great to hear from from listeners and, and work together to, to create a better future. Awesome! So I hope people will will listen, volunteer, donate, uh, get inspired to do your own things, even though you don't uh, have millions of dollars to get it started with. Um, Adam and Alyssa, you guys are an inspiration. I'm I'm feeling. Uh, twice as energized now as I did at the beginning of the call, and I'm so glad that that you're out there and that the world is being so responsive to this message that uh, we, we so desperately need to spread. So thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk with more of you. Yeah, yeah great, great being here, and, uh, and thank you for offering you know such, such, such great questions that that, that really challenged us and, and, and helped us to, to even gain a deeper understanding of you know who we are, what we do, and why we do it. Um, you know, it's, always, it's always helpful to have the forum to be able to um, you know to really express express what, what's happening with the organization. Well, th- thank you for giving me the opportunity. All right, all right. Have a great day, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. You guys too. Take care.